You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, please. We continue to um, work through the Ten Commandments. Been in this for a while, and I trust it's been profitable to you. It's been great encouragement to me to see how quickly and how ready the church has been to receive the teaching of God's law and how many are willing and wanting to implement changes in their lives and in their patterns is they receive correction from this guide for our life. And this has been greatly encouraging. I really believe that you as a congregation have received and continue to receive uh, this teaching very well and with an earnest and meek desire to see your lives conform to the standards of God. But let's look at Exodus 21 through 21. I'll read and then I'll pray and we'll get into our text of Scripture this morning. God spoke all these words, Exodus 20 verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O God in heaven, we come at this time to ask that you would sanctify us through the reading and preaching of your word. Would we be stronger, more loving, and united Christians as having had this opportunity to gather and to hear your law preached? 
We pray for those among us who do not know Christ, that the preaching of your word would be convicting and that would drive them to the Savior so that they might be converted. Please anoint the hearing and preaching of your word in Christ's name, amen. We've been in the Ten Commandments for a while, as I noted, and the Ten Commandments are God's natural law. They are the moral law. They have abiding authority. We shouldn't be dismissing the Ten Commandments, be, oh, that's Old Testament, we're in New Testament now. No, as I've tried to explain and demonstrate from Holy Scripture that the apostles and Jesus himself upheld the Ten Commandments as God's abiding authority. We've spent the last two weeks on the Fifth Commandment, which pertains to the honor of your parents, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The first week on the Fifth Commandment, we looked at the definition of honor. I spent some time talking about this and trying to define it, but again, I'll list this helpful definition from Matthew Henry just to review the matter. And he says, honor is a decent respect to their persons, an inward esteem of them, outwardly expressed upon all occasions in our conduct towards them. So that was a very good definition of honor. And then I looked at the direction of honor, which is what? It's up. Responsibility flows down, honor flows up. And so honor in the most natural relationships is to be directed towards parents. And then I looked at the derivative of honor. And what do you derive from honor? You derive the blessing of God. When parents are honored, the blessing of God rests upon a family. And when a society is characterized by the honoring of parents, the blessing of God rests upon that society. The last verse of the Old Testament, pointing towards the New Testament promise of the second birth. The hearts of the fathers will be for the children, and the hearts of the children will be for the fathers. And this is a gospel promise and a gospel blessing. When people are converted, their hearts are turned towards their parents and their hearts are turned towards their children. And so one of our problems in our day and age is this is a my generation generation. But you should be looking to the previous generation to honor them by building on what they've left you, and then you should be looking to the next generation so that you can leave them something to build on. And as people honor God, and as the hearts of the fathers are turned towards the children, and the hearts of the children towards the fathers, Good things can be accomplished over the generations. And then, that was the first week. Last week, I had tried to apply this to all of life, all the various stages of life. It was a very applicational sermon. And among the most relevant of the Ten Commandments is, I think, the Fifth Commandment because of how dishonorable people are in this generation towards the previous generation. Today, the next generation is almost expected to rebel against the older generation is a rite of passage. It's just perceived as a normal, healthy thing for the next generation to rebel against the previous. And parents accommodate their parenting styles because they fear that their children will rebel, as opposed to their parenting being grounded in faith and principles. 
Last week, I outlined the relationship between parents and children at various stages of life, which I think was very applicational. Today, I'm going to stay in the fifth commandment for one more week. And today, as I stay in the fifth commandment, I am going to deal with a subject that is very much related to it, and that is the subject of race, ethnicity, and racism. Race, ethnicity, and racism. And how is that related to the fifth commandment? You might ask. Well, your ethnicity is tied to your parents and your grandparents. Your ethnicity is tied to your parents and your grandparents. And so, as ethnicity is tied to parents and grandparents, we have this category of ethnic relations that develops in the Bible that we're going to go over and make some very important applications. And issues of race and ethnicity, I think, are becoming more and more discussed in our culture, in our day and age, regularly. It's, I don't think you're seeing ethnic tensions in this part of the world quell and turn towards peaceful relationships. I think there's more hostility and bitterness developing than there has been in a very long time. And we'll touch on this, especially near the end of my sermon, as to what is precisely going on right now and the various ideologies that are being propagated. If at all during this sermon series, in any sermon series, in any time of life, you've come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, I will pastorally exhort you, as I have throughout the whole series, to run to Jesus Christ. So you shouldn't be leaving the church feeling guilty and shamed. You should be leaving the church feeling grateful that the Lord would save a sinner like you. And so go to Christ immediately. But I hope to, by dealing with the issue of ethnicity, provide some categories for you and some ways of thinking as we navigate these difficult waters and by which I think we should be grounding, or I think we should be grounding our thinking on these matters in Scripture as opposed to pop culture or what academics tell us or what government policy is. And Scripture should become our reference point as we sort through these matters. And so I hope to lay a foundation. Should this, thankfully, as I, as I said in the Lord's Supper, thankfully this has never become an issue among us. Okay? It's not been an issue among us. But if it ever were, if we were, ever were to be tempted to make it an issue among us, I hope that I can lay a solid foundation today is a point of reference to reflect on and hopefully develop proper thinking so that we're not taken by the destructive and empty and hollow philosophies of our world. And because this is the topic that it is, it's a bit of a lightning rod topic, I am going to encourage you, before I get into this sermon, to pay very close attention to what I'm saying and to what I'm not saying. So don't assume I'm saying something and don't assume I'm not saying something. Listen very carefully to how I parse this out. Don't let your mind be clouded by emotions as might be the case, as 
especially in this day and age. But be careful to think this through and to hear what I am saying and hear also what I'm not saying or don't hear what I'm not saying. And so I do hope to provide some categories through which we can think this stuff through scripturally and reference points in case this ever becomes an issue. And I think the trajectory of things right now for various reasons, I think I'll discuss them later in the sermon, these are pulling people, issues of ethnicity are pulling people apart more and more towards entrenchment right now. And um, I think this is becoming more evident, but we'll talk about that later. But here's how I'm going to outline my sermon. Here's how I'm going to outline my sermon. What is ethnicity will be the first thing I try to answer. And then I'm going to answer the question, what is racism? And then I'm going to talk about cultural Marxism. What is ethnicity? What is racism? And then I'm going to talk about cultural Marxism. And so let's talk about this first issue. And this is the first question I'm asking. What is ethnicity? And I prefer, as I answer this question to use the word ethnicity over race. And that's because the word ethnicity is derived from a scriptural word, the Greek word ethnos, which is all over the New Testament and is indeed a scriptural category. And so, for example, you see the word ethnos used in Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says in the Great Commission, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, verse 19. And so the word, the Greek word for nations there, uh, or, or the Greek word that nations translates, is ethnos. And it is a very real category scripturally. And so I prefer to use the word ethnicity over the word race when we deal with these things. And ethnos, the Greek word ethnos, the common lexicon that we would use for the study of New Testament Greece, Greek, defines it, ethnicity, as a body of persons united by kinship, culture, common traditions, and that are a nation or a people. A body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. It's a nation or a people, okay? And so there's various things that are at play, and all of these are at play when you deal with ethnicity. It's not just kinship, it's not just culture, it's not just common traditions, it's all of these things blending together, is how the Bible presents it. Kinship, culture, and common traditions, they all tie together to give you ethnicity. So as I talk about ethnicity in this sermon, keep that in mind. Some people hear ethnicity and they automatically think skin color. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Kinship, culture, and common traditions together is what's going on. There's multiple things at play. And in fact, just because two people have the same skin color doesn't mean they have the same ethnicity. You can have the same skin color as someone, but it not be, you not have the same ethnicity. So a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. That's ethnicity. Keep that in mind. So ethnicity is tied to kinship, common descent, lineage, and family. That's why I'm putting it under the heading of the fifth commandment. 
But it is not the sole factor. Kinship is not the sole factor. Ethnicity is determined. And it need, it need not always be a factor in some cases, although it typically is. It need not always be a factor, although in some cases it typically is. But that's ethnicity. So what is ethnicity? And kinship is an aspect of ethnicity, but I think ethnicity is much more complex. Ethnicity is kinship, culture, history, language, religion, all of these things tied together. That's kinship. And the idea of ethnicity emerges in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10, which I referenced in the Lord's Supper time together. It emerges in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10 from Noah, and especially after the Tower of Babel. Now, Noah had, I'm going to look at Genesis 10, and we're going to see ethnicity emerge here and become a major factor in the playing out of God's redemptive plan and in world history, ethnicity emerges. It's not, this is not a fabricated category. It's a real category that's founded on the pages of Scripture. And so we're, we, we are told in Genesis 10, verse 1, that Noah had three sons. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then for much of what remains in Genesis chapter 10, we see various ethnic groups develop. And so Genesis 10, verses 2 through 5, we have ethnicities come from the sons of Japheth. So for example, the sons of Japheth, it says in Genesis 10, verse 2, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Masheth, and Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamar, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim, his own language by their clans and in their nations. And so these are ethnicities that come from the descendants of Japheth, who's one of the sons of Noah. And the descendants of Japheth tended to be the European peoples. As you see by the names of the clans that are identified with them, and if you trace the use of those names historically, these tend to be the European peoples, the sons of Japheth. And, and then he goes on, Moses goes on to describe the sons of Ham in Genesis 10, verses 6 through 20. The sons of Ham, Genesis 10, verse 6, Cush, Put, and Canaan. Sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdaka, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum. Anamim, Lahabin, Naphtalim, or Naphtuhim, Pathruisim, Kalsuhim, for whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. And he goes on to describe descendants of Canaan also. And if you look at those names and you examine them, the descendants of Ham became the African people, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites. Those were the descendants of Ham. So the African peoples and the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites came from Ham. And so Japheth, the European peoples, the European ethnicities came from Japheth. The African Babylonians, 
and the Syrians and the Canaanites came from Ham, who was the son of Noah, and then finally you get to the sons of Shem. And you see the sons of Shem in Genesis 10, verse 21 through 31. So, for example, in verse 21 of Genesis 10, to Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Ar- Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram, and then he goes on to describe them. And Eber is the most important one as far as the biblical story goes, because from Eber came the Hebrews. And so, but the Shem, the sons of Shem, that's where you get the word the Semitic peoples. And so the Semitic peoples came from Shem. Eastern peoples, I believe, Chinese and Indian, Far Eastern peoples also came from the descendants of Shem, if you look at the biblical stories. And so those were the descendants of Shem. And so we note how innumerable ethnicities emerge on the pages of Scripture, and it's much more complex than simply skin color. It's much more complex than skin color. There's cultures that form around these ethnic groups. There's languages that form within these ethnic groups. They each take on different religions. There's ways of thinking that are ingrained within the cultures. And certainly how people look and their skin color is often associated with the ethnic group, but it's not the sole factor. On all of these people were divided by language, culture, and religion, and geographically where they resided. And so this is, this is ethnicity emerging on the pages of Scripture. You have different ethnic groups rising up in God's providence to occupy various geographical regions, and there's languages and there's cultures that are associated with those ethnic groups. It's a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. That is an ethnic group. Just a few observations about ethnic groups before I move on to my next point. And that is, one of them is that ethnicity is in flux over time. It's not fixed. So you may look at the world today and you may say, well, it's fixed. Well, it's, it's in flux over time. So migration Historical developments, wars, marriage between ethnic groups mean there is flux. These things are in chain. Some ethnic groups disappear, and they're either they, they just don't exist anymore or they're assimilated into more dominant ethnic groups. Um, and then some ethnic groups, through various social factors, emerge and just all of a sudden come to be because there's migration or there's division within a nation or there's a war and or there's a new religion that's developed and so there's new ethnic groups that form. And this is the way it is. This is not something that's fixed. This is something that is in flux. It's in flux and it has been since the world was divided on these grounds. As you see, they're not fixed within the pages of Genesis. These are ethnic groups that emerge providentially through the dispersing of nations as they cover the earth and various marriages are formed and so on. So it's not fixed, it's in flux. And also that you see this in Scripture clearly and you see it in history, 
Within geographical areas, there is typically a dominant ethnic group. There's typically a dominant ethnic group. And then, is within one geographical area, there's a typically a dominant ethnic group. There's ethnic groups that are dominated by that ethnic group. And that's typically how you can say things go. You can see things go. And so, for example, you even see this in the land of Israel. So you'd say, well, the Hebrews were one ethnic group. Well, yes, but they had foreigners living among them that weren't part of that ethnic group. But even within Israel itself, there were ethnic groups. Some You could call them ethnic groups that emerged, common descent. So God appointed the house of Levi to be the priesthood within Israel. So those who descended from Levi had their own special calling within the house of Israel. And God appointed the descendants of Judah and especially the descendants of David to be the kings in Israel. And so even God made ethnic distinctions within Israel and ethnic groups played a different role within Israel. And so within countries, there's typically a dominant ethnic group and then there are ethnic groups that are dominated by the dominant one. If we distinguish ethnicity by kin, culture, history, tradition, and religion. And so there's different ways, when there's different ethnic groups that come together, there's typically three ways that this is going to go. One is, the dominant one will annihilate the dominated one, which has certainly happened in times past through genocide, which is evil, but it, it does happen. It's a reality that we have to deal with. Or the dominant culture assimilates the dominated culture so that the dominated culture becomes part of the dominant culture, our ethnic group, and they're absorbed into it. Or they separate and they form their own little subcultures within the dominant culture. But this is how things typically go. And so ethnicities in flux over time, and then typically within a geographical region, there is one dominant ethnic group. Over time, ethnic groups die out or are absorbed by other ethnic groups, and new ethnic groups emerge, and this is all directed by providence, by God's providential dealing with the world. So what is ethnicity? What is ethnicity? Ethnicity is a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions, religion, and language, etc. And I've chosen to use the word ethnicity and talking about this issue because the term is derived from a scriptural category, namely the Greek word ethnos, which occurs multiple times in the Bible. And I believe that when, especially in the Great Commission, when Jesus is referring to the many ethnos, the many nationalities, the many ethnic groups that we're supposed to take the Great Commission to, he has specifically Genesis 10 in mind, the dispersing of the nations. Because... The nations, the hostility between the nations or the ethnicities will be quelled by one person, and that's Jesus Christ, because he rules in the hearts of his people. So what is ethnicity? Kinship, culture, common religion, traditions, etc. Okay, that's ethnicity. Now what is racism? Let's move on to the next point. I talked about ethnicity. Let's talk about the next one. What is racism? as we consider the ethnic groups. And I'm just going to flat out say I don't like the term racism. And the reason I don't like it is there's multiple, 
And I'm not even going to use it. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to think differently on these issues as we come to the scriptural text. But I don't like the term because it's not in the Bible. The word isn't even, the word term racism is not even found in the Bible. And there's no commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt not be a racist. All right? And so I don't appreciate the term and I don't appreciate the category. And beyond that, the term racism is so overused that it's a useless term today. It's basically useless. And it's used basically in this day and age to simply punish political opponents. Someone on the left doesn't like you, you're a racist, right? That's how it goes. They don't like you, you're ultimately a racist. And so they use the term to beat people into the ground, punish them, and slander them. However, there are sins that are associated with what could be called by some is racism. There are sins that, are, that could be associated with race or ethnicity. But I prefer not to use the term, and I challenge you, as I get into this section and talk about what is racism, I challenge you to think, don't think in your mind, is this racism? Think in your mind, is this sin? That's what I want to talk about here. Not is this racism, but is this sin? And these are the categories that we have to think about. Is it sin? And if it's not sin, then we have no right to call it sin. And if it is sin, we must call it sin. And these are the ways that we should think about this. And I think the term Racism has been used, especially in our day and age, to call things sin that aren't sin. And so we need to be very specific in how we deal with this matters, these matters and the categories that we use. So this is my main point as I ask, what is racism? I'm, I'm challenging you, and I'm going to say this several times under this point. You probably shouldn't be thinking in your mind, you shouldn't be thinking in your mind, what is racist? You should be thinking in your mind, what is sin? That's what you should be thinking. What is sin? Not what is racist. What is sin? And so in order to illustrate this or apply this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give examples of things that are not sin that people call racist and things that are sin that people might call racist or might not call racist. What is sin, not what is racist? And I hope to help you by giving some examples of these things and giving some scriptural references throughout. But as I go through these things, listen carefully, okay? Listen carefully. This topic has not received enough thoughtfulness in our day and age, and this is probably why it's become such a mess. And so because I say something, don't assume I'm saying something else. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. So here's a few things that are not sin. These are not sin. It is not sin to have a dominant ethnic group in a geographical area. That's not sin. That is almost always inevitable. And we can trust in divine providence to direct such things. It's not sin to have a dominant ethnic group in a certain geographical area. 
In fact, ethnicity is connected to family, which puts this within the category of the fifth commandment, and large families that work together over time become dominant as alliances are formed. So it's not sin to have a dominant ethnic group. In fact, large families over time become dominant as they form alliances, typically by marriage, with other families, and then dominant ethnic groups seem to emerge. Ethnicity is connected to family, and large families that work together over time form alliances with other large families that work together, and from those alliances, civilization and government come. Government comes from family. Because what did I say when I preached the fifth commandment? Family is the basic institution. Okay, it's the most basic element of society. I say this at every marriage I do. It's the foundation of society. The marriage is the foundation. Why? Because all of society flows from the family. So if all of society flows from the family, it's not sin to have a dominant ethnic group in a geographical area. Okay? Beyond that, there's another thing that's not sin. It's not sin to note characteristics that are distinct between ethnic groups. It's not sin to note distinct characteristics of ethnic groups. So, for example, Germans are good engineers. Anyone have a problem with that? This is something that the German people have excelled in over time. The French make good wine. African Americans are good athletes. Right? Like this, these are just simply highlighting the distinction of different ethnic groups. And for whatever reason, whether it's the cultures that emerge or the context in which these ethnic groups are formed, it's not wrong to highlight that they're distinct. And in fact, I think the distinctions are part of God's creative plan. They're part of His creative plan. We're not all the same. Not all ethnic groups are the same. And God is a creative God. Now, those are all positive traits that I just noted, positive traits that I highlighted. But it's not sin to note distinctive characteristics of ethnic groups that are negative. That's not sin either. That's not sin either. So if an ethnic group, and remember how I defined ethnicity, right? Kinship, culture, traditions, language, etc. It's not sin to highlight characteristics that are negative. And so the Bible does this, in fact. In the Old Testament, because the Canaanites who occupied Israel at the time of the Hebrew takeover, because they were descendants of Ham, they are characterized scripturally as lewd, pervy, backwards people. And I said that so many times when I preached through Genesis. Those particular ethnic groups. And in fact, that's why the Hebrews moved in as instruments of God's judgment, and God told them to wipe them out. It's an act of his judgment. Because they, as an ethnicity, became characterized by perversion and evil. Or another example of this in Scripture that is absolutely clear is Paul says to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, he speaks of the Cretans. 
And he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So it's not sin to note distinct characteristics of ethnic groups, whether negative or positive. It's not sin. Beyond that, here's another thing that's not sin as we go through this. It's not sin to voluntarily associate with people you are most familiar with. People are free to associate and gather with whoever they wish. And if they feel most comfortable with a group that they are most like, then that's their own business, and it's not sin. It's not sin, especially when we consider that ethnicity is derived often from family. Often from family. So that's not sin. Furthermore, here's another thing to consider. It's not sin for there to be general economic and cultural differences between ethnicities. That's not sin. In fact, if you are part of a larger ethnicity that is characterized by more prosperity than another one, that's not necessarily sin. That's not sin. The Bible considers privileges blessings that are to be used for people's good. So it's not sin for one ethnic group to be characterized by more prosperity than another. That's not sin at all. This is where we're going to get into cultural Marxism, where you get the divisive elements of some contemporary thinkings on this. There can be manifold reasons for economic discrepancies. Manifold. And some good, some bad. And we are best to leave that to providence to dictate and sort it out. It's not sin to want lower immigration numbers or give preference to certain countries over others in immigration policy. It's not sin. And furthermore, I'm careful to pay attention to what I am saying and what I'm not saying. Furthermore, it's not sin to desire to marry within your own ethnic group. That's not sin. So there's a whole things that, bunch of things that aren't sin that could be categorized as sin. A whole bunch of things that aren't sin that could be categorized as sin. Remember what I'm trying to say is don't think in terms of that's racism, that's not racism. As Christians, we should be thinking in terms of that's sin, that's not sin. That's what I'm going to try and help you with. Now let me give you some examples of things that are sin. I said this is not sin, this is not sin, this is not sin. What are things that are sin? It is sin to hate individuals and are to seek to harm individuals because they have a certain ethnicity. Jesus teaches us to love all people and love all nations. The gospel is to go out to all nations. So that would be sin if you hated somebody because of his or her ethnicity. That's sin. It is sin for courts to have prejudice for or against individuals because of their ethnicity. So justice is a principle that is blind. And so for courts to have prejudice for or against people because of their ethnicity, that is wrong. That's sin. 
The courts are to operate on principles of justice. Scriptural standards of justice are to be equally applied to all. It is sin. It is sin for churches to exclude persons from membership or communion on the basis of their ethnicity. Christ is for all nations, meaning all ethnicities. So it would be sinful for a church to exclude someone from membership or communion solely on the basis of their ethnicity. That's sin. We're to invite all who profess faith and know Christ to communion and to church membership and who are walking obediently with the Lord. It is sin for churches or governments to forbid marriage between different ethnic groups. That is sin. It would be sin for the government or the church to forbid marriages between different ethnic groups. So, for example, listen to me. Within the lineage of Christ, there was a Canaanite who converted. There was a Moabite who converted. And the Hebrews, when they left Egypt, absorbed repentant Egyptians into their community. They absorbed repentant Egyptians into their community. And Paul told the early church, there ought not be divisions among them between Jew and Gentile. It's a sin to marry into another religion, but not into another ethnicity. It's a sin to marry into another religion, but not into another ethnicity. Now, what I'm about to say is not sin. It should be obvious, but for some it will be offensive. Those who marry into other ethnicities should do so fully aware of the cultural differences and the difficulties that may arise when those cultural differences exist. So a practical illustration is if you're going to uphold the fifth commandment and honor your mother and father, well, honoring the ethnic heritage of your in-laws looks very different than honoring the ethnic heritage of your own parents if you're in a marriage that is distinct ethnically. Okay, so there's certain challenges that will come from an inter-ethnic marriage, but it's not sin to be married to someone of a different ethnicity, nor is, or and it, sorry, it's not sin to be married to someone from a different ethnicity, and it is sin to, for the church and the government to forbid such marriages. It is sin, however, to marry someone of a different religion. They're not born again. And furthermore, it is sin, here's another sin, it is sin to believe in the ontological superiority or inferiority of different ethnicities. This is Darwinian. It's based on evolution. The greatest racism, if you want to call it that, the greatest prejudice springs from theories of Darwinian evolution, whereby they actually, even in his, his book, The Origin of Species, articulates beliefs in the ontological superiority and inferiority of different ethnicities. And that's sin. Where look very basic level, yes, we have different ethnicities, but at the very basic level, we all come from Adam and Eve. And so, yes, there are distinct families, but there is one human family in one sense. And so all people are created equal in the image of God. 
and are worthy of dignity and respect. Now, saying what I just said, it is sin to believe in the ontological superiority or inferiority of ethnicities. It's not sin to believe in the superiority or inferiority of cultures within ethnic groups. There are cultures that are inferior to others, and there are cultures that are superior to others, and you can simply ground that in what the Bible says. The culture of Sodom was an inferior culture, and they were treated accordingly. The culture of Israel under King David was a superior culture. So that is not sin to believe in cultural inferiority or superiority, but it is sin to believe in ontological superiority amongst ethnicities. That's Darwinian. And it's foolish and often sinful to lump all people in one ethnic group together, believing that each acts thinks the same. That's foolish and likely sinful, often sinful. Even when ethnic groups have distinct characteristics that the ethnic groups are characterized by, there's always the exceptions. There's always the exceptions. And so, in saying everything that I've just said on this point, what is racism? I have addressed each issue, or sorry, I've tried to, what I've tried to do is not address each issue, and what I've done is to give you issues so that you can see that we shouldn't be thinking in terms of that's racist, that's not racist. We should be thinking of terms of that's scriptural, that's not scriptural, that's sin, that's not sin. That's where our minds should go. We've gotten confused in this day of age when so many things are, are labeled racist. And we shouldn't even be worried about what the world is defining as evil. We should be worried about what God defines as evil. And I haven't been exhaustive in my pronouncement of that's sin, that's not sin. I've just tried to give you some examples in order to challenge your thinking and hopefully help you start thinking in the same categories. Help you start thinking in the same categories. We should do away with the term racism, I think, because it's overused and often used to advance political agendas and punish political enemies. And instead, we should train our minds to think in biblical categories. That's sin, that's not sin, which I hopefully have helped you do. So what is ethnicity? What is racism? Now, one more point, cultural Marxism. Let's talk about this for a minute. Cultural Marxism. Now, these topics, cultural Marxism, warrant several sermons, but I want to move on from this topic to the next commandment eventually, so I'm not going to do several sermons on cultural Marxism. I want to move through the, to the next commandment eventually. But I'm going to recommend some books, and you don't have to write these down. If you get our e-bulletin, I recommended these books in our e-bulletin. But the first two books I want to recommend are Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strawn, and the second book is Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. And... Those two books deal with this heretical ideology of cultural Marxism, wokeness, some call it now, and how it pertains to the church and the gospel. So I recommend those books. And they're in the e-bulletin this week if you want to have a look at them. And the third book I want to recognize, or recommend to you is a book called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning by Nigel Bigger. Now, what cultural Marxists have done is they're bent on what they call decolonization. You might have heard this tossed around. 
which assembly essentially means destroying the achievements of particularly the British Empire, and Canada, of course, is one of those achievements. And so cultural Marxists are bent on decolonization, which means destroying the achievements of the British Empire, and Canada is one of those achievements. And so this is why you see people tearing down statues of John A. Macdonald and, and so on. And we see this come up in a lot of claims of, for example, the native genocide, aboriginal genocide. So there's been all this stuff about mass graves and mass burial sites. And what do we find this week? There hasn't been one instance of genocide or mass burial genocide ever discovered in this country. Okay, the whole thing is becoming a hoax. And this is why they burnt down churches two summers ago, right? And are, for example, land acknowledgments. This is all about decolonization, making us feel as if the accomplishments of the British Empire, Canada being one of those accomplishments, are bad things. Some of you have been pressured to do land acknowledgments and stuff. And we had a, anyway. And it's, and it's all founded on the premise that colonialists were racist, genocidal white supremacists. And so I'd, I recommend that book that I just had up there by Nigel Bigger on how to do with that, because the book, you can put it back up there, the book analyzes these claims and shows them to be patently false while highlighting the moral goodness produced by the British Empire without whitewashing some of the shortcomings. And so he goes through all, a whole bunch of the claims, and he deals with large swaths of the British Empire, including... Cecil Rhodes, who founded Rhodesia, he deals with Australia, he deals with New Zealand, he deals with our own country, Canada, he deals with the slave trade, the treatment of the aboriginals in Canada, and he goes through the historical details with a fine-tooth comb to demonstrate that the British Empire was not a bunch of genocidal white supremacists. And this is a false claim that is being used to destroy Western civilization to bring in communism. This is the whole intent behind it. So I recommend that book, especially if you're involved in educating people. So that would be you homeschoolers and you who work at King Alfred Academy. It's an excellent book. But what is cultural Marxism? Well, cultural Marxism, to sum it up, I've given you some books to help explain the context by Owen Strawn and Vody Bauckham. It divides society into oppressed and oppressor. And the oppressed are always considered the minority groups, and the oppressors, or at least the, the oppressors are the dominant groups, especially in our context, white heterosexual males are the oppressors. And so it, it divides society up into oppressed and oppressors. And then through various Marxist policies, it attempts economic, so-called economic equality by rewarding with policy ethnic groups and penalizing the so-called oppressors with policies, various policies. This is in the corporate world. This is being taught in our public schools right now, and so on. And what it does is it stirs up covetousness and hatred between ethnicities 
to destroy free enterprise and family relationships and to usher in communism and totalitarian government control. This is the design. It's an attempt to bring in Marxism by creating cultural division, cultural Marxism. And instead of matting out consistent standards of justice on individual levels for real sins, it invents sins while dividing and destroying issues and people under the false pretense of racism, cultural Marxism. It creates division and especially ethnic division, cultural Marxism. Okay? And I'm very concerned about it. I'm also very concerned about an issue, a subcategory of it that I think is going to emerge and is emerging. I'm very concerned about a backlash against it with a white superiority or white supremacy that will arise as a backlash against this. And I don't think you see it in full swing yet, but I'm concerned that it's going to come. So on one side, you have, you have these people declaring that all white people are racist, they don't even know they're racist, and they're evil colonizers, and then what you're going to have is you're going to have a backlash, and you'll have an ascendant white supremacy if this continues on, because you have a generation of whites who are taught that they're the result and are racist, and when you keep telling people you're racist and you can't do anything about it, then what's someone going to do? Well, fine, I'll just be a racist. And then that's what they're going to do. And then you have the onslaught of mass immigration. And you have a number of whites being economically disadvantaged by these cultural Marxist policies. And then you have the decapitalization of societies as homes are becoming more expensive, groceries are becoming more expensive, families are possessing less wealth. And then what you're going to do is you're going to fuel hatred and resentment in the white population eventually. And that will, that will be an ugly backlash. I'm not advocating for it. That would be wrong, but that is where this is heading, especially if you have a generation of people that are taught that the Bible's not true and believe in Darwinian evolution. You're setting, the country is setting itself up for big problems. And so you add all of this up, and then you have the lack of critical thinking skills in education. And you add all of this up, and it wouldn't take much for there to be a movement towards white supremacy is a backlash against cultural Marxism and a desire for ethnic so-called purity. And so, you know, someone says, I don't care. They call me a racist anyway. I'll just be a racist. Who cares? And then you have an entrenchment of identity and sin, skin color. And, not, and, and all of this, you can't get sucked into the cultural Marxism. And you can't get sucked into any backlash against it. Both are wrong. Both would be sin. Fueled by hatred, animosity, jealousy, covetousness, bitterness. To be sucked in on one side, which is today occupying the politically left. And then to be sucked in on the other side, which could very easily occupy the political right at some point would be sin if these levels of prejudice and hatred and animosity and bitterness are going to be behind it. You have to interact with the issues at a biblical level. And a lot of churches have, have set themselves up for some big problems here because there's churches that have advocated for 
kind of a watered-down cultural Marxism because cultural Marxism is the flavored as you are right now. What are those churches going to do when white supremacy is the flavored as you are? And now we got to be relevant on that side of the aisle. You see, this is a problem because people have not been taught to think biblically and scripturally on issues. And they've been tossed to and fro by the winds of the time. And it's about time that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ start repenting of godless ideologies and embrace what the scriptures have to say. All of the division can only be healed with one message. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, where people from all different types of ethnicities come to the communion table together, drink the wine and eat the bread, because we've all experienced the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. The government policies create more division and festering and bitterness in the hearts of sinful people. That's all they're doing. They're creating anger and hatred, and often prey on the bitterness festering in the hearts of people, and the covetousness heart festering in the hearts of people. The gospel does not eliminate ethnic and cultural differences. In fact, as I've said, I think this is all part of God's creative design to providentially direct all of this as He pleases. His families are fruitful and learn to work together. Ethnicities emerge. But when different ethnicities embrace the gospel, it removes the hatred and hostility rooted in past experience and even present reality. It removes it. Because we're called to repent, we're called to love each other, and we're told truthfully that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. And all human beings are created with dignity and worth and value. Producing mutual love and respect between the families and ethnicities of the earth and it leads to the embracing of a universal standard of justice rooted in God's law, even as the God's law has to be applied distinctly in distinct cultures. And then you have a universal humility that is founded in grace. This is the, all the government attempts to create this new world order and open borders and all of the stuff that's going on right now. It's antichrist because it's the claim that unity and peace can be derived by totalitarian government. It's antichrist. Whereas true unity across the nations can only be achieved redemptively through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the only hope for the nations. As Abraham was told in Genesis chapter 12. So I've answered what is ethnicity, I've talked about what is racism, challenged you to think not in categories of what is racism, what is not racism, but rather what is sin, what is not sin. And then I've touched on cultural Marxism while offering you some further resources if you want to learn more. And I think this is a direct application of the fifth commandment with a little bit of the sixth commandment mixed in. And then I've offered you Jesus Christ as the only solution to ethnic division, and hostility. And now I say, let's have prayer. Let's have prayer. Go to our Lord. Oh God in heaven, how we thank you. How we thank you for our dear Lord Jesus, the hope of the nations, the Prince of Peace.
And we pray that you would help us to love him and adore him and trust him. And we pray, God, that he would be greatly honored among us and that our hearts would be sanctified and we would learn to think in scriptural categories. Amen.